Good morning. Welcome to With God at Dawn. And happy Sabbath, brothers and sisters. I want to do something a little different today. I'm just going to deliver a sermon that was given by D. Casper in January 2 of 2020, titled, Why I Don't Get the Gospel. I was so blessed by it that I wanted to share it with you. And rather than me just picking out the parts that I was blessed by, I'm going to share the whole thing. And uh, it may take me a minute. I may even have to break it into two sections. I'm hoping not, but um, I'm going to go ahead here. Let's start with prayer. Dear Jesus, we need your spirit here to guide us, open our understanding. Bless us this morning, Lord. Help us to actually get the gospel in your name. Amen. So Adam and Eve fell, and they fell by being convinced of lies about God and his character, right? Satan insinuated these lies about him. They were believing lies about themselves and their standing with God. This is what set them up for a lot of trouble. The lie that God is not for you, he's against you, that he's withholding good things from us, that his warnings are meaningless, that he can't be trusted. I'm going to have to take care of myself because God won't take care of me. These lies are deeply embedded in our DNA since the fall. It's going to require us encountering the truth and daily reflecting upon that truth in order to overcome those lies. And I believe that's why Ellen White says that we should spend a thoughtful hour every single day reflecting on the life of Christ and particularly the closing scenes of his suffering and of his eventual death. So the gospel's meant to uproot those lies in our heart and minds and to root us in a truth that can set us free. It says in John 8 verse 37 that, that you may know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Believing these lies leads us to make decisions that harm ourselves and others, which in turn leads us to be filled with shame, with guilt. You know, the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is doing something wrong. Shame is being wrong. Uh, sin is doing something bad. Shame is being bad. You know, with self-hatred and thoughts of condemnation, so it's something we're going to have to wrap our minds around as a people is that sin is not merely physical or verbal actions or unholy thoughts. Sin is deeply embedded in the psyche, and it's an outworking of a belief system of lies that we're believing at the very core of our being. It's much deeper than that. I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. There's something wrong in the core belief level within my being that has to change. Satan, and Satan, the Bible says Satan is the author of those lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. So in this context, then we've become so hardened through our guilt and shame that a gospel that offers a solution and receiving a love that, well, we know we don't deserve, it's going to wake an opposition and suspicion. You ever have someone come up to you and offer you a gift that you really know that you you don't deserve and you wonder what are these people about and you maybe even a little bit distrustful initially and hesitant those lives that we've been dealing with for thousands of years have caused us to not believe what the gospel actually teaches and to distrust what the gospel actually does teach and this is why we don't believe the gospel and would prefer a solution that comes from within ourselves and our own efforts instead of learning to find security in the achievements of another that's why I would feel better about trying to earn it myself, knowing fairly well that I'm not going to get there, that I have to face the fact that I have nothing to offer and I need someone else to give me something that I know good and well I, I don't deserve. But thankfully, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, the prophetic call of Jesus offers a solution to these deeply embedded lies in our core beliefs. He says he's coming to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Guys, this is what most of our experiences look like. We're filled with mourning. We don't feel that we would be accepted. We're bound in prison to lies, discouragement, and defeat. Jesus is coming to give relief to all of this. The whole point of the gospel is to heal every aspect of our being. This verse shows us that God has a plan to unravel those lies, the shame, the thoughts of condemnation, 
He sends Jesus to do a powerful work of redemption and to deliver us from the emotional and psychological havoc the sin has brought in its train. The gospel is not just meant to heal bad theology, right? I mean, we're calling people out of Babylon. We're not just telling them to exchange philosophical views. It's putting people in captivity emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Are you understanding me? The gospel is meant to set the entire person free. That's what Jesus came to do. This is why I think we need to be talking about this topic. And here's what happens. We let Jesus heal the very depth of our being and those root lies that Satan has sown in our DNA for thousands of years. This is what happens when we allow that good leaven to leaven the lump of our heart. And they shall rebuild the old waste places. That's Isaiah 61 verse 4. They shall rebuild the old waste places. They shall raise up the former desolation. They shall repair the ruined cities and the desolation of many generations those perpetual generational curses these lies have caused. This is what our lives feel like when facing what our sins have done to us and the people around us and what other people's sins have done to us. It makes our life feel like a heap of ruins, doesn't it? It's a disaster. I'm a disaster. But the true gospel of Christ, the message of Christ our righteousness, the message of Christ our righteousness has a very appealing effect upon people. It heals, right? It repairs the ruined places. It raises up the desolation. This is what happened in my life. This is what happened in the lives of the church. When this message of Christ, our righteousness, was brought to our people who were in darkness and bondage because they didn't see Jesus in our own message. And they felt overwhelmed by the expectation of God without knowing how to achieve them. You ever been there? Overwhelmed by the expectations of God but not knowing how to get there? Paul talked about this in Romans 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, how much good dwells nothing. Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I don't find. Like I know what God expects me to be obedient to the law, but I don't know how to get there. Because I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, but I'm not succeeding. And then you have this response that may be something like your prayer life last night. Oh, wretched man or woman that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, in 1889, many of our people had this experience of failure and confusion while earnestly desiring to serve God. You want to serve God. You want to do what's right, but you keep messing up along the way. I know what God wants, but I don't know how to get there. And we feel so condemned by our failed pursuits. Have you ever been there? But the 1889 revivals and the testimonials of people who encountered the message of Christ, our righteousness, shows us First of all, that freedom is possible, and that freedom is found when we see our message in its proper perspective, and we understand what our role is, and what God's role in in the plan for transformation. And we also see how God views us in our journey towards that transformation. Because some of us may feel like, well, it's not until I'm transformed that God would actually look upon me favorably. But in the book, Return to the Latter Rain, Volume 1 by Ron DeField. It's the most exhaustive history we have of what actually happened in 1888 and afterwards till about 1891. That's when this book ends. And it's using only primary sources. So it's not hearsay. It's not relying upon historians' point of view or what they think happened or what they say happened. It's looking at what Ellen White said happened, what people who were present at the meeting said happened, and so forth. It's really helpful. It's the best treatise we have on this. And in chapters 8 and 9 of his book called 1889 Revivals 1 and 1889 Revivals 2, I was flabbergasted and nearly offended to find out that Pentecost was happening in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the latter rain was falling in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1889 through 1893. And no one told me that the very thing we're praying for and have prayer initiatives for has already happened. And there's a blueprint to see it happen again. The history is there, guys. So Pentecost and healing rain were falling on the Seventh-day Adventist Church from 1889 to 1893 and a little afterwards. Ellen White tells us that the latter rain was beginning to fall then, so clearly something important was being communicated at that time. If heaven is going to send its most powerful sign of endorsement, if heaven is sending rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, in response to a message, it's endorsing what has been shared. 
And so the rest of this morning is going to be covering some of those themes that were addressed during that time. I can't do all of it, right? There's very little time today. But again, I will resource you and do what I can. So here's the problem. Romans 3.23 tells us that we all continue to sin. It's in the continu continuative in the original language. Romans 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59 verse tells us why. Because that sin separates us from God. John 1.4 tells us God is our source of life. That's a problem. Yeah, God made us for life. Jesus came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. But we right now are living in a battlefield where there are casualties. Yeah, we live in the midst of a great controversy. So humanity is facing a massive two-faced problem. Death and that which causes death, which is sin. But God's posture towards us does not change even though we have fallen. Amen? Amen. And this is one of the beautiful messages that was shared during that time. His posture has always been for us, not against us. We see this clearly in our next text because in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we're told that God demonstrated his own love for us. Notice Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love you. God sent Jesus because he already loved you. And this says, while we were still sinners, you with me? Okay, that's good news. This implied that God is for you and not against you, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, even though we have sinned, God, seeing us in our darkest condition, sent Jesus to die for us and to provide for us complete salvation. So God clearly here is taking the initiative and doesn't wait for us to do something before he comes after us and begins the work of redemption on our behalf. So that's very good news then. God is not reactionary. He's the one making the first move before we get anything right. And in encountering his love for us first, awakens the reciprocating love in our own hearts. First John 4:19 phrases it this way that we love him because he first loved us. It's impossible to love God until you first encounter his love for you. Which again is why Ellen White says we should spend that thoughtful hour every single day reflecting upon the life of Christ, particularly the closing scenes. So Jesus not only loves you, God not only loves you, but he longs for you to know and believe the love he has for you. Not just to hear about it, to be intellectually convinced he wants you to experientially know it and to believe it with every ounce of your being. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And this most precious message, I believe, is what God wants the people in the world to see, to better understand the love that God has for them. And it will give them the intrinsic motivation to forsake anything that would pull them away from him. Amen. No one is going to surrender to God unless they first know that he already loves them, right? Well, why would you just surrender to someone who you don't believe has your best interest at heart? You wouldn't want to do that, which is again why God is smart and he shows you love before you deserve it, which awakens within you a desire to reciprocate. So here's the big issue. We don't naturally possess the righteousness that the law requires. Yeah, we don't have it. We lost our robes of righteousness as a people when Adam and Eve sinned and lost their covering that's where they were naked and felt shame. And I might I add that our children are not born with a robe of light. But thankfully, also in Genesis 3, we see that God preaches the gospel of a suffering Messiah who is to come, who will eventually crush the serpent's head. And Romans 8 breaks down what's available to us through his conquering of Satan and how he conquered Satan. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation, for those who are aware, for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That states clearly an obedient walk. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is that you sin, and because you sin, you die. But if we've been set free from it, we don't have to sin. But, uh, okay, so Jesus' death clears all of the death that Romans 6.23 told us. The wages of sin is death. Jesus' death clears out that death. It frees us from the condemnation that we deserve in the judgment. And this becomes credited to us when we respond to his faith in us and place our faith in him and trust him to be our righteousness. We see that the Spirit is the agent that God uses to set us free from that... Um, 
I can't read this word he has here, from sin and death that apparently is so strong that he equates it to a right love. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to skip that. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. And the solution so far seems to be that we need to be found in Christ to have the spirit do a work that lives in us that's de desperately needed. So when the spirit is living in us, <clears throat> apparently he's saying that our life will uh, reveal Christ's righteousness. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. The solution so far seems to be we need to be found in Christ to have the Spirit do a work that lives in us that's desperately needed. 7 Corinthians 5.17 or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he makes him a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So going back to Romans 8, here's what we're told. For what the law could not do that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's the point. It took me a long time to understand this verse. It took me quite a while. The law couldn't save us. That's the point he's making here. What the law could not do to save you because it's weak through the flesh. Because my flesh can't keep the law on its own. God does by sending Jesus in flesh, just like yours right in flesh like ours. And in doing so, Jesus condemned the sin of the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. He became our perfect standard of righteousness in human flesh so that when we're found in Christ, all of the achievements that Christ achieved are now imputed to us through his spirit. That's the point in a verse chapter, chapter 4. We see the end result that Jesus does all of this so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit so jesus so that sounds like uh, that's hinting at a death to self right that we don't walk according to the flesh desires but according to the spirit which will be our spiritual understanding telling us what is right so we walk according to what we know is right and the righteous requirements of the law will be fulfilled in us christ will give us that victory Jesus living the successful, righteous life in flesh like ours opens the door for us to have access to our righteous life that we have not lived and that the law requires, and we have access to that in Christ by faith through his Spirit. So this is what's implied when you hear the phrase, Christ our righteousness. We have earned no righteousness. We have not achieved righteousness. We have access to what was achieved in the past in Christ. And it becomes a present reality in our lives through faith in the outworking of his Holy Spirit. That's what's implied. And Ellen White breaks it down like this. She says, The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Now, some of these nerdy terms that we don't define very often, but we often use them, it kind of confuses our people. You know, you could, you, I'm going to add this myself because it really helped me. Somebody explained it this way once that you could have a title to drive a car without the fitness. In other words, you could pass the test on paper, but you might not know how to drive the car. And so we can have a title to heaven through Christ, but the fitness is our knowing how to follow him and our obedience. Anyway, I'm going to get back to what he says. You might like his statement better. The imputed righteousness of Jesus is his righteous life being credited to you. And when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all his achievements are credited to you. You're viewed as righteous when you accept Christ and trust him to be your righteousness. And then at the very same time, another phase called justification at the very same time, another phase begins of Jesus now making that a literal reality in your life by changing your life, right? That's called sanctification or imparted righteousness. That's the tangible delivery of Christ's righteousness, righteous life in your life. That's why when we give our lives to Jesus, there's things that we don't do that we used to do before we give our lives to Jesus, right? You know, I want to state here that these last few paragraphs are where he's explaining imputed and imparted and justification and sanctification. I see it just a little tiny bit differently, but I'm going to go ahead and read just, just as he delivered it. And I'm not going to... Uh, 
say anything about what I think. I just want to say that I see it just a tiny bit differently, but at the end result is, I think, the same. So, okay, back to his reading. So you're viewed as righteous, and in that process of him viewing you as being righteous, he now begins a process of making you righteous. Does that make sense? You were viewed as righteous while he's making you righteous. Assuming you walk in this situation, right? If you leave Jesus, the process has to start all over again. But again, he's for you. You should come back and keep going, right? So we're declared righteous while God is making us righteous. And this, yeah, and I, I agree with that. And this is such good news for people who want to overcome and to make sincere decisions for Christ, but they wrestle when they still see sin in their lives as they're striving heavenward. And you wonder, well, how does God view me right now? Right, I know at the end of the line, this is what I need to look like. When the assembly line process is finished, that's what I need to look like, especially if we're going to live in the midst of the closing crisis. So this is what we focus on, and we think, I had to be that. Then if I'm going to be saved then, but then a really difficult question comes, yeah, but what if I'm not that right now? Am I saved right now? Does it make sense? We wrestle with this. But we're striving to overcome if we are in Jesus, if we're striving for heaven, and we're going through a process of overcoming. Ellen White says there will be many times when we have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus, but we're not cast off and not forsaken. If we're continuing in the journey because he's not done with you yet, right? Ellen White equates this to the growing of a plant. And I don't even have time to go into this. But there's a chapter in Christ Object Lessons called The Blade, the Kernel, and the Ear, something along these lines, where she makes this point very clearly. We're viewed as righteous. And she says we can be perfect at every stage of development, that you can be viewed as perfect at every stage. So if you plant a seed of corn right now, it would be illogical to expect that it will be a full stock of corn with a full of ears tomorrow. It doesn't make sense. That's not how agriculture works, which is why Jesus used the illustration of agriculture. But here's the problem. That's how we view ourselves, though. We think that's crazy thinking about agriculture. But when we think about our spiritual lives, we think, oh, no, no. Like, I'm clearly not good enough because I'm not a full stock of corn. You are what you should be right now if you're staying in the soil. If you're receiving the grace of heaven, if you're growing and striving, those things are going to leave your life. God's not done with you, but you're viewed as righteous while he's making you righteous if you continue in the process. So here's the point. Don't leave. Don't quit. Don't pull yourself out of the soil. And that's what Satan tells you. You've been reading your Bible for three weeks and you're no different. Just quit. Is Satan telling you that? Those thoughts don't come from Jesus. Those are coming from someone who knows that this process ends at success because he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It takes time, guys. No one says amen in the penitent prayer and is perfect from then until the second coming. It doesn't happen that way. But if you remain in the soil, keep trusting Jesus, this process does end in success. Amen. God's people are set up to overcome. Keep moving forward. Keep trusting Jesus. That's the point, okay? There are two messages in Audioverse where uh, D. Casper does more on this cause, but he doesn't. He didn't talk about it much today. Okay. Why matters? And the answer to our deficiencies. I'll give you a whole bunch of resources at the end that you can email him. Well, I'm not going to give you his email because I don't feel that right about that, but... Um, Ellen White says, what is justification by faith? It's okay. This is really good. I love this statement. What is justification by faith? It's the work of God to laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man now, which it is not in his power to do for himself. Now, uh, laying the glory of man in the dust that happened when Jesus took our nature and put it, took it to the grave. He laid the glory of man in the dust and he did for him what it was not in our power to do for ourselves was to fulfill the law. And when men see their own nothingness, that's when they're, that was just me adding that. I liked um, that thought. When men see their own nothingness, that's when they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we recognize that we bring nothing to the table in and of ourselves, we need access to a righteousness that we can't conjure up. It's humbling, isn't it? deeply humbling. It lays our glory in the dust. This falling upon the rock of Christ will lead us to plead with him 
to be our righteousness, to save us from ourselves. And if we do that, there's very good news. Because in John chapter 6, 37, we're told, And all that the Father gives me will come to me. So that's why we need to come to him, brothers and sisters. The one who comes to me, Jesus says, I will by no means cast out. Amen. If you come to Jesus and plead with him to be your righteousness, he is not going to cast you out. He's not going to push you away. This is precious, precious good news for us. When you see how insufficient you are, it will drive you to Jesus. When you come to him, he's not going to push you away. Now you can walk away on your own. You have free will. But he has no intention of pushing you away, which means, again, that God does not have a posture of being against you but for you. Unfortunately, the nation of Israel did not understand their nothingness, did they? In chapter Exodus chapter 19, verse chapter 24, 3, uh, they say, All the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. This is uh, in response to them encountering the glory of God and seeing the expectation of God, and it spooks them. And they, they say, All that you have spoken, will we do. All the words the Lord has said, well, we will do. All the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. They say they saw the law was important. It caused them to respond with a promise to obey. But their worldview at that time led them to think that they had to do things to get God to leave them alone and to care about them. Why? Because they spent 400 years in Egypt where our religion was based upon you having to do things to appease the gods and get them to notice you and to favor you. That's the Egyptian religion. You with me? They were... This is called secretism, right? Syncretism. They were seeking to follow the God of the Bible while using principles from pagan religion. Ooh, yeah, that's right, syncretism. They were trying to intermingle two different approaches to religion. In and in turn, did they succeed? No, they failed miserably. Less than 40 years later, they were running laps around a golden calf in a pagan revelry. Why? Because all the Lord has spoken we are incapable of doing in our flesh. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, But they didn't know that because the religion of the Egyptians say you got to do stuff to get God to notice you and even care about you. Unfortunately, we have many Egyptian Adventists who think i got to do stuff to get God to notice me and to favor me. But remember Romans chapter, eight verse, verse, chapter 5 verse 8, it says, God already loved you and sent Jesus before you got anything right. Does he desire you to do right? Of course. But you're not going to be able to do that without Jesus. We want to have a faith that works by love. But you're only going to find that love by first encountering his love. So because that's the religion of the Egyptians, they didn't get it. And the God of the Bible was not the one that you had to do things to appease to get him to notice. Uh, Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 tells us God wanted us to build a sanctuary. Why? So that he could dwell among us. And John chapter 1 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another word for the word is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I would say God for us. Are you with me? We do not worship a God of wood and stone from Egyptian lore. We serve a God of love who has pursued us in our darkest moments. Why? Because he knows the only Love is love by love is, I say, only by love is love awakened. And obedience will not be possible without true love. Without true love. That's just the thing we need in order to be actuated to obey. True love only comes by first encountering his love for us, which we have never deserved. That's the point. So this process and this thinking still continued all the way till the day before Joshua died, right? Till the end of Joshua's life, we saw quite a bit in his time in Joshua 24. He gives that whole saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can do your thing, whatever, but I'm in my house and we're going to serve the, I and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Maybe some of you have those placards in your house, little cross-stitch things or something else. And people say, no, 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 we also will serve the Lord. And you would assume at this time that Joshua says, oh good, they finally get it. But instead... In an initial glance, it looks like he gives the worst pastoral response ever because he says, you can't serve the Lord. God's not going to forgive your sins. Can you imagine a pastor saying that to his congregation? We will we will serve the Lord, but you can't serve the Lord, and he's not going to forgive your sins. Is Joshua losing it because he's angry? No, no, no. Here's the issue. Andrew's study Bible picks up on this and gives some great commentary 
They say this reaction of Joshua to Israel's pledge of commitment echoed Israel's similar pledge at Sinai years earlier. Now, even though the words were appropriate, the people needed to realize it was not enough to make a brave declaration and a pledge of allegiance. That's not enough. They also needed to recognize their inability in themselves to obey God. They could not be forgiven while they were depending upon their own strength and righteousness. That's why he says what he says. They needed to trust wholly in the merits of the promised Savior who would forgive their sins and give them power to obey. (laughs) But yet, some of us are still struggling with that Egyptian mindset. Now, there's more that could be said here in the real issue between the Old and New Covenants. But again, there's a message in Audioverse called The Grace of Christ and the New Covenant you can listen to. The main issue was this. Who was going to be responsible for ensuring that the people keep the law of God? Was it the people or was it God? That's the issue in the covenants. Who is the power source? Jeremiah chapter 36 makes it very clear. Chapter, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, 36, that God is the power source through his spirit who would empower the people to obey And he could only do that because his son came and lived that perfect law-abiding life in flesh like yours and mine. And this is what the Spirit makes a reality in our lives, right? That's that imparted righteousness. That's what sanctification looks like. That's what the Bible is, is asking for. And Ellen White says this very thing in Christ Object Lessons. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent, all powerful. Did you get that? It's not that we are omnipotent and all-powerful. It's as our will cooperates with the will of God. And whatever is to be done at God's command may be accomplished in whose strength and his strength. And then she says that all of his biddings are enablings. In another place in Christ's object lessons, she says in every command and and in every promise of the word of God is the power, the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled. And the promise realized, and that means you should never be threatened when God speaks to you and tells you his will. You should never be threatened when God asks you to surrender. You should never be threatened when God gives you his commandments. Why? Because in the power, or in the command itself, is the power to walk in the command. That's how this works. The command may be fulfilled in the promise, realized through the promise itself. He who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life, the very character of God. And this is played out in John 5. There's a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Ellen White gives us some more insight. He's the most helpless case there. He's there and he's paralyzed because of a lifestyle of sin. Now in the Jewish mindset, he's filled with shame and self-hatred because I did this to myself. This is what I deserve. But there's a tradition in that era that, well, I don't believe it was biblical, uh, There's a tradition that when the water was stirred, the people believed it was an angel, and the first person who got in that water was healed. If that's actually saying that God favors people who get in the water first, that's a survival of the fittest, and that's a cornerstone of evolution, and we do not subscribe to this. We don't believe in evolution. We don't even believe in theistic evolution. It's all repugnant. And so what's really happening there is the reason why Jesus does what he does as she says that he was looking for the most helpless case. I think it was to dispel this view in Israel. God is not just, you know, benefiting the fittest. I'm looking for the most helpless case. So if you're the most helpless case there and that water's stirred, what are your chances to get in that water? It ain't, ain't going to happen, but you better believe on day one when he was first there. I don't know how often it happened, but let's say it was 10 times a year. You would assume that the first time that the water was dirty, it would flop like a fish trying to get in the water only to see someone else get in there before him. I'm sure he was devastated. That was my one chance. But then it happens again, and he flops, and he rolls. He doesn't make it. Imagine how he feels five years later, after the 50th time. I mean, yeah, he may try to get in the water. He's not trying as hard. Now imagine 38 years later, the water's stirred. His heart rate doesn't even increase. He just doesn't even shift his body weight anymore. Why? Because this is what I deserve. My case is hopeless. I did this to myself. I can't change. And that's why Jesus shows up when he does. 
because Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came to bring comfort to those who mourn. So the gospel is meant to do, guys. It's not just meant to change your bad theology. It's meant to heal your broken heart. Jesus wanted to heal this man's broken heart and his body. Amen. And so he comes up to the guy and he asks him a question. Do you want to be made well? Well, you could assume the answer to that's obvious. It's kind of dumb, but he's Jesus and Jesus is not dumb. And second of all, the guy's answer is lame. It's not because he's lame. His answer is lame. Well, I can't because there's a, he's telling all the reasons why he can't be healed and you would just assume the thought that goes through Jesus' mind is, I didn't ask you, why can't you be made well, and why aren't you? Well, I ask you is, do you want to be made well? The answer is clear, no, because this is what I deserve. Jesus is asking this man, now we're referring back here to the original thing that uh, D. Casper said about how we have this wrong, believe in lies about God. Uh, why would somebody give you something good if you don't deserve it? I hear this man is going, no, because it's, this is what I deserve. Jesus is asking this man to exchange identities, no longer having identities based upon what he's done to himself, what people have done to him, but based upon what Christ has done for him. And some of us need that same identity switch today. So Jesus asked the man to exchange identities. And so then he tells him, rise, take up your mat and walk. Now, if you were to go out to some by name street corner in Louisville, Kentucky right now, someone in the wheelchair and told him to get up, that would be cruel. But Jesus isn't cruel. And why does all this matter? Because Jesus understands the kingdom principle that in the command is the power to walk. In the command. And that's what happens in John chapter 5. Ellen White says this very thing. Through the same faith, we may receive spiritual healing by sin. We've been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied of ourselves. We're no more capable of living a holy life then was the impotent man capable of walking. We're spiritual invalids, were it not for Jesus. There are many who realize their helplessness, who long for that spiritual life, which will bring them into harmony with God, but they're vainly striving to obtain it. That's the Romans 7 experience. You ever been there? No matter what I do, I just can't get up. I just can't. In despair they cry, Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But then she says, Let these struggling ones look to the savior who is bending over the purchase of his blood and saying with inexpressible tenderness and pity wilt thou be made whole you actually want things to change do you actually believe that i'm for you not against you and he bids you rise in health and peace. Do not wait to feel that you were made whole. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled, my brother, my sister. If this guy waited for a holy mojo feeling in his legs, he never would have walked again. His legs are spaghetti noodles. They can't support his body weight. He had to believe what the word of God said in spite of what he felt. Are you with me? And if the word of God can create a universe out of nothing, beloved, he can change your life. He can raise you from the spiritual death. He can give you power overcome do you believe what his word says or do you view his commands as threats and as insult the mockery of your current condition who do you think of when you hear god say is it a healthy picture of god is it an unhealthy picture of god what do you see in the mirror when god tells you to do things do you see an unhealthy picture of yourself or do you see a child who's beloved of god because the answer to those questions matters a lot we have a lot of conversations at conferences like this about hermeneutics. And hermeneutics are important. It's how you interpret scripture. But your biggest hermeneutic is your view of God. If you have an unhealthy view of God, you're going to read unhealthy and come to unhealthy conclusions. When you read scripture that God is against me, he's not for me. So if you have unhealthy views of yourself, you'll come to read every verse in the Bible that looks like a curse that is personally directed at you. This is why mental health matters, and that's why the 1888 message, the gospel, Christ our righteousness, was meant to open our eyes to the fact that God has always been for you. He's not been against you. You have help in this journey through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus walked in flesh just like yours and overcame so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in your life who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
that's why, guys, you're not losers. You're not left to fight for yourself. Satan tells you that. And your Egyptian root structures, while trying to be an Adventist, tell you that. But the Bible doesn't tell you that. Are you with me? Do not wait to feel you were made whole. Believe his word. It will be fulfilled. Put your will, your power, your choice on the side of Christ. Will to serve him. And in acting upon his word, you will receive strength. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion, which through long indulgence binds soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. Amen. Here's the point. The only reason why Jesus would bear this long with people and love them, in spite of who they have been, is because he sees something of value in them that they don't even see in themselves. That's the faith of Jesus, beloved. When you read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, Here are they that keep the commandments of God. That's only going to be possible if they first believe that God already loves him. And they're letting God do in, through, and for them what they can't do for themselves. And that refers back to that statement that it's the work of God to put the glory of man in the dust and do for him what they cannot do for themselves. Second of all, it says they have faith of Jesus, not faith in Jesus, the faith of Jesus. Amen. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, gives us a picture of this. Our evangelists use this text a lot. It talks about Jesus knocking on the door of our heart. In the original language, it's in the continuative, which means that he has been knocking, he is knocking now. He has no intention of not knocking tomorrow. But whose door is he knocking on previously? In Revelation chapter 3, we're told it's a group of people whose religious experience made him want to vomit, which, by the way, Ellen White, as early as 1852, diagnosed our movement as being in this condition. We weren't even Seventh-day Adventists yet. And that virus was already in our system. 1852, we were incorporated in 1863. But the background of the people that he's talking to are people whose religious experience makes him want to vomit. Jesus doesn't just say, you make me sick. You know what he tells us, but I'm offering you a solution in myself. I'll give you gold tried in the fire, faith that works by love. Ellen White says, I'll give you white garments, the garments of Christ's spotless righteousness. But here's the tough one. Lastly, he says, I'll give you a spiritual discernment to recognize your true condition. And this is where many of us have failed. We think um, Laodian Christians are people who drink coffee, watch movies, or go to church on Sunday. I think there's a typo in this. Or I don't know what that word was supposed to be. But um, hmm. it says it again. That's not a Laodian Christian. A Laodian. The point of the... Oh, I'm sorry, there it is, Laodicea. Okay, we think Laodicea and Christians are people who drink coffee, watch movies, or go to church on Sunday. That's not a Laodicea and Christian. A Laodicean, the point of the Laodicean message is you're not who you think you are. That every aspect of you being emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, and otherwise, and until you come to realize your nothingness and come to me for a solution, you're in trouble. And every single Seventh-day Adventist right now has to look in that mirror of Revelation chapter 3 and ask themselves some difficult questions. Who am I? Who do I actually believe I am? Who is God really? And this is why I'm firmly convinced that there's a heavy mental health component to Revelation 3 message because we're believing lies about ourselves. We're believing lies about God. We're beating ourselves up and we're self-sabotaging our Christian experience because we don't believe the truth because as a man thinking it in his heart, so is he. And so is God. You with me? Yes. we got to start dealing with our stuff. And we've committed the sin of Kellogg that we have separated mental health from the health message. Ellen White never did that. But we do. Did you know the work in mental health is part of the medical missionary work? Yeah. And if the call of Jesus was to heal the broken heart, and we're not talking about heart disease, guys. It's talking about the heavy heart issues that we as a movement, uh, we don't want to talk about that stuff. We hide from because it's uncomfortable we don't want to acknowledge who we are well if we were already branded as being that in 1852 then just own it and deal with it come face to face with the fact you're not who you think you are and you need Jesus that's the point that's the point of the gospel it offers you accountability it also offers you acceptance unfortunately the two ditches and Adventism give you one or the other. We either give you a gospel of acceptance or a gospel of accountability. The true message the gospel gives you both. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the gospel that Jesus preached. That's the message that we should be preaching. 
And our message should be healing people with their broken hearts, not just their broken theology. So we better start dealing with mental health as a movement. You with me? Ellen White gave us a ton of counsel about it for a reason. Yeah, I'm just saying. All right, so here's the point, though. These people that got issues in Revelation chapter 3 were a mess. And yet, for whatever reason, Jesus is standing, knocking on the door of our heart. And again, it's in the continuative in the Greek, which means he's been knocking. He's knocking now. He'll be knocking tomorrow. Why? It must be because there's something of value on the other side of that door. It's you. This is why the Spirit of God speaks to you when you're about to believe things that aren't true. You're about to do things that aren't good. Not because he's condemning you. It's because he's offering you something better in himself. He wants you to open that door. He can give it to you. If you understood that conviction of sin is not rejection or condemnation. It's an invitation to something better. Conviction of sin is not rejection. It's an invitation to something better. Don't run from him. What I love is the fact that he's not leaving that door. Imagine what the neighbors are thinking. Guy's been there for years making a fool out of himself on your porch. And if you looked in the face of Jesus, you'll see a few things. First is sadness. I wish I was in there. I wish he would let me do what I know that I could do for them. And I think the second would be anticipation. Maybe they just can't hear me. Maybe they're just not ready yet. I'm going to keep knocking. Why? Because of the faith of Jesus. He sees something in you that you don't see in yourself. He's not going to leave till you do or until there comes a point in time which he has no other option because you've closed that door forever. But until that very last moment, he will love you until you breathe your last breath. And even then, he's going to miss you for eternity. That's the gospel, guys. Amen. That's the message God's trying to bring our church years ago. And we need to understand this. It's a blessing. It's a gift to us. And the greatest example of the faith of Jesus is found at Calvary. Ellen White says this. She says, The faith of Jesus. It's talked of, but it's not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus? It belongs to the third angel's message. Jesus, becoming our sin-bearer, that he might become our sin-pardoning Savior. He came to our world. He took our sins, that we might take his righteousness and faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply, fully, entirely, is us receiving the faith of Jesus. Amen, amen. It's living your life as if the gospel was true. Living your life as if the gospel was true. E.J. Wagner put it this way. God chooses men not for what they are, but for what he can make of them. Amen. There's no limit to what he can make of even the meanest, the most depraved, if they're only willing and believe his word. There's nothing impossible for God, but he does not cross the threshold of the will. And this is why your view of God and your view of yourself matters and why the theology that buttresses the things we teach and what picture of God it gives, even if it is indirectly, matters. Because if you give the implication that God's against you and not for you while trying to preach the, the uh, Adventist message, it confuses our people. It makes them invalids. And I have counseled far too many of them. It needs to stop. It has to stop. God has never been against you. There's never been a day that God has been against you. There's never been a day when God was not for you and working for your good. So the way in which we communicate our message matters. We need to use tact and wisdom. Stop. Ask yourself the question as you're writing your slides, writing your Bible studies, writing your sermons. What type of a picture of God is implied, even if it's not explicitly communicated? I've met a lot of invalids who are invalids because of implication. If you did a survey in Adventism right now and asked people, are you saved by your works? Everyone will give the right answer, but if you ask what was implied by the way in which some people communicate this message, there could be confusion. Details matter. This is why this now hopefully will make Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 make more sense. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and now we see why the gospel is amazing. For it's the power of God, what draws us and keeps us to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. God's pursuing faith in us to faith. God's pursuing faith in us to faith and our reciprocating faith in him. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the Hebrew, in the Haba, which is quoted, you know what it actually says? Yes, the just shall live by his faith. Christ's faith, not your faith. That's the answer, guys. So you may feel that your whole life has been a total disaster, has no potential to bear fruit, there's no hope. You think God's wasting his time on you. Maybe you wrestle with thoughts like this, and I meet many people who do. I've been sitting here year after year after year. I'm no good. You know what? I believe he would tell you, give me one more year, 
Remember the fig tree? It's not putting out fruit. They say get rid of it. He says, no, no, give me one more year. Let me dig out all the lies that are in your heart. Let me dig out all the false distortions of myself and of yourself that are in your heart. Give me a year to cultivate this soil. Give me a year to nourish you, to nurture you, to send the latter rain from heaven, to strengthen, to encourage you. Let's see what happens, beloved. It's that time of year, isn't it? And according to what we're seeing in the history of 1889 revivals, it was raising people from the dead. People who are in experiences of bondage and discouragement feeling they would never be good enough for God were having the chains broken in their experience. Why? Because the true message of the gospel sets the captive free. It heals the brokenhearted. It comforts those who are mourning their lack of success. And the Christian experience gives them oil of gladness and joy for the oil of gladness and joy. It'll change their ashes, beauty for ashes. This message can do that for you. I've seen it, but will you give them a chance? That's the question. This message is meant to heal your broken heart, to set you free. So would you take a year to study this message, to come to a better understanding for yourself? See if it changes your life. He's inviting you to come to him, broken as you are, to see what he can do for you. And if you come to Jesus, there's a precious promise that he's given us. Listen to this. We covered this earlier in John 6, verse 37, that he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Ellen White was writing a correspondence to someone who was deeply discouraged, felt they would never be good enough for God, and she was familiar with that experience. And she said that if all you do is come to God and say, if the only thing you can believe is that I would come unto you, you would not cast me out, that you would be safe. He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise, you have the assurance that you will never be turned away. Amen. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Let's have a closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this Sabbath day, Lord, that we can enter into your rest, the rest of that redemption that's already been bought by you, knowing that you have completed it for us and that you are completing the, the rest of the work in heaven for us today and that we can come to you and confess and repent and know that we have an advocate. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, I'll see you in the morning. God bless you today.